What is it that they say? It's not how you begin the race. It's how you... Finishing is everything. Finishing is everything. When someone runs a marathon, the question... First question they're going to ask you is, uh, did you make it? Did you get to the end? Did you finish? When someone sets off to climb a mountain, the question they ask is, did you summit? Did you make it to the top? We've been going through the book of Hebrews now for uh, several months, and I wish, in hindsight, that I would have thought of this at the very beginning of the sermon series to pick a hymn that kind of served as our theme our theme song for the whole book, the the hymn that I should have picked was, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You've got to finish. Never, ever, ever, ever give up. That's been the theme, hasn't it, throughout this book. No turning back. And today we get to come to chapter 11, which is truly one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible because it lays out for us this long line of heroes of the faith who through their patience and faith persevered and they finished. It's a continuation of what we read in chapter 10 verse 36 where it says that you need to persevere so that in the end you will receive what God has promised. And here we are, chapter 11. Chapter 11 provides the recipe for no turning back. Let's read it. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out, made out of what was visible. I, I want to just stop and make a quick comment on this. This is so verse three is affirming the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that God Where did it all come from? God spoke the universe into being by the word of his power, ex nihilo, out of nothing. This contradicts the increasingly common view that you hear among scientists that the universe is eternal or that there are millions of different other parallel universes which are also eternal. But it doesn't contradict something, say something like the Big Bang Theory. There's a point of singularity from which the universe explodes into existence. You know, most Christian astrophysicists believe in the Big Bang Theory. But either way, if you believe that the universe is eternal, or if you believe that the universe was created ex nihilo from, uh, by God, I hope you realize both of those are faith commitments, aren't they? You can't prove verifiably that the universe is all there is and all there was and all there, all there, there ever will be. I mean, and, and neither can you definitively prove that God created out of nothing. These are both faith commitments from which you know, everything else flows. Then, verse 4, we get to the first examples of saving faith in the, in the Bible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, it says, because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is keeping with faith. One other comment right here. Christians have, for a long period of time, debated whether or not the flood that's described in the book of Genesis was global or, or was it regional. And those debates, they, they continue. But here you, but most Christians believe that these three men who are just described, who lived before the flood, these three men were all historical figures. And you notice, here's what's interesting. All three ended up with very different outcomes in their lives. They all lived by faith, but they ended up all in a different place. So Abel, he had remarkable faith, and he was murdered. (laughs) Enoch had remarkable faith, and he never died. And then Noah had remarkable faith. He was saved when everybody else died. But then if you know the Noah story, you realize that, I mean, by the end of his life, his life takes a terrible turn for the worst. And it becomes a life of, of unspeakable tragedy. All three of them had faith. Three very different outcomes. I mean, the reason I'm making this point is far too many people distort faith along the lines of, you've heard this before, if you have enough faith, then God will bless you with material prosperity. Right? Yeah, we are just trusting Jesus for a new truck. And, you know, and we claim it in the name of Jesus. We bind poverty, all the, the health, wealth, gospel stuff. We, if you have enough faith, you're going to always be healthy. I mean, come on, look. The first three men in the, in the heroes of faith, it, it just doesn't, all go, it doesn't go that way necessarily. Keep that in mind. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, Obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was, it's interesting, he says, Abraham wasn't looking for this little plot of ground in the Middle East that is so hotly contested today, who owns it. He says, Abraham, he was looking, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, when, who was past ch- childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man and this one woman, and he as good as dead because of his age, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw those things and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had, had an opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a phrase. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Is faith in God fundamentally irrational? That's the question I want to ask. 
Is faith fundamentally irrational? Many people think it is. Some of you have seen the popular internet meme, I've talked about it before, that compares belief in God to belief in the flying spaghetti monster. It's a satirical uh, entire religion that they've created. Faith in divine creator is no more reasonable than faith in an imaginary flying spaghetti monster. And they've created these, this long list of routines and rituals, satirical routines and rituals to honor the flying, uh, flying spaghetti monster whose worshipers are called pastafarians. Uh, is, faith, is faith that irrational? Come on. Or remember how Mark Twain defined faith. He reportedly said that faith is believing in what you know ain't true. <laughs> is faith rash- irrationality in disguise? Well, the first point I want to make this morning is, is no. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, every single one of us live by faith. All of us. Secular, religious, everybody. Faith is embedded in pretty much everything a human being does. It's, uh, it's not fair. It's intellectually dishonest. It's, it's just naive to, to limit faith as though faith is this thing that only religious people do. No, faith is embedded in nearly everything we do. And it's not in contradiction with reason. It's, it's perfectly consistent with, and it actually incorporates reason. Here's an example. Let's say you know that you are going to need major surgery. First thing that you have to figure out, you're going to have surgery. Who's going to perform the operation? Who is the best surgeon for my situation, for this situation? And to answer that question, there's a rational process you follow. You, you talk to friends who share with you their experiences you get recommendations. You get references from, for the doctors you're considering. You ask probing questions like, do I really need this surgery? Is the surgery essential? You sift through the evidence. You weigh competing, competing claims. You don't just leap to a conclusion. You think about it. That's the very first step or very first part of the faith process is you think. Secondly, after the thinking and the researching and the sifting and the evaluating, there comes a second point. A second point where, what do you have to do? You have to, you have to decide. You, you have to commit. Okay, I'm in. This is it. I'm going to do it. This is the right doctor for me. This is the right surgery for me. You, you reach a point of what we would say, assent, I agree, and I'm going to do it. Now, at that point, you realize that you're, you're not dealing with certainty. You're still in the realm of probabilities. You're 80% sure that this is the right doctor, and he's going to have a good day when he's in the office the day that he's opening you up, right? You're not sure. You're, 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 you think so. You're, you're leaning that way. You think this is what needs to be done, and, and you commit to it, even without being entirely certain. What's the third element then in the faith process? The third element, so the first element is knowledge. The second element is a kind of agreement and commitment. The third element, what's the third thing you have to do? You have to lay yourself down on the table. You have to lay there and make yourself vulnerable and, and put your, you, you put your life into the hands of another person. That is what we call trust. Because faith 
in its essence, is trust. How many times have you heard this before from someone? Oh, you have faith. That's how nice. I'm so glad that works for you. Uh, I'm just not a faith. I'm not into faith. That's just not, that's not for me. But I'm glad that you're a faith person. I'm glad that baloney. It's absolute nonsense. We're putting our faith in people and things all the time. Everything from your mechanic's diagnosis on your car, you're putting faith in him, to how you decide on a career path, to the very big things like how you decide on who's going to be your spouse. How do you decide what is moral and what is immoral? How do you decide what is, what's the meaning of life? What are you going to live for? And all of those things, you are essentially following a faith process. And that leads me to the standard Protestant definition of faith. I've already outlined it for you. The, the standard Protestant definition of faith is knowledge, noticia, a census, you know, assent, agreement, and then fiducia, which is fiduciary trust, trust. And we're doing this, as I said, we're doing this all of the time. I trust you. That what you're telling me about my brake pads, because <laughs> I know nothing about cars, but I trust you that it's true. All the way up to I trust you when you say, this is death until death do us part. I trust you with my very life. This is happening on the philosophical level all the time too. Uh, if, you, if you don't believe in Christianity, just consider this. If, if, as what most people believe, if you and I are nothing more than the product of evolutionary biology, and if all the thoughts and all the feelings that we have, everything about you and me is nothing more than the chance collision of molecules, if everything you and I think and feel and, and experience can be explained in terms of chemistry and physical laws and molecular actions, what makes you so sure that the impulses that are going on in this brain tissue up here, that those impulses are reliable, <laughs> Why, if it's all a collision and chance of molecules, don't you realize that even on the philosophical reason, level, reason, rationality, is undergirded by faith? You've got to have faith to believe that it's telling you something that's true. And so here we get to this point. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian is not whether or not you have faith, but what your faith is in, and even how aware are you of all of the faith processes that are taking place in your life? Uh, as one author puts it, it can be something as mundane as turning on, the, uh, turning on the handle on my sink, trusting that the city water system is going to work. <laughs> trusting that the water pressure will be adequate to force the water out of my spigot, and the unhealthy impurities have been removed at the water treatment plant. You know, I, we... Faith, we get our water on trust. <laughs> uh, trusting that it will refresh us and keep us alive. It's just trust is essential to every human action because we all live by faith. That's point number one. Point number two. The, the standard Protestant definition of faith that I just gave you is accurate. I agree with it. I totally agree with it. But did you notice that it is not the same definition that's given to us here in Hebrews 1. Look, look at verse 1 with me. Faith is not just trust. Look at the words of verse 1. It says, now faith is confidence. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And here's the second word. 
and assurance about what we do not see. Yes, it is trust, but it is much more than trust. It is, it is certain trust. It is certainty that God will keep every one of the promises he has made about our future. It is, I'm sure of this. You know, take it to the bank, put it on the board. Uh, confidence, which then leads to action. You see the action involved in all of these people's lives. First one, first guy we have here is Abel. Abel, according to the book of Genesis, brings some of the most valuable lambs he possessed. He brings them to God as a costly sacrifice, as, as an offering. Whereas Cain merely brings some of the produce of his field. And, and then he gets very angry and that precipitates Abel's murder. But Abel, Abel brought the costly sacrifice because he was certain that God would reward somebody who made a a costly sacrifice on God's behalf. Second one, Noah. Noah, while the birds were still chirping and the sun was still shining, Noah builds an ocean liner in the middle of Iowa, right? (laughs) That's the story. That's how it goes. Why did he do that? Because he was certain that that God, what God said was coming, was coming. There's, There's a giant wave, Noah, that's coming. And Everybody laughed at him, I'm sure. He was, everybody thought he was nuts. But he was certain. Enoch, this is the third guy we have here. It's kind of hard to say much about Enoch. Enoch becomes a, a popular figure in Jewish writings about two centuries before Jesus. Enoch has this mystique about him because he's one of, what, only three people in, in the Bible who don't actually die in Genesis 5.24. It says that that God just took him away. And so Jews, uh, during the uh, intertestamental period, they were very interested to try to figure out, well, what, who was who Enoch? What did he do? They ended up writing two books, First Enoch and Second Enoch. Lots of speculation. But you notice here, all the author says is, he doesn't get into the speculation. He just says, Enoch pleased God because he believed God. Abraham, Sarah, okay, where am I going with this? We definitely don't want to polarize faith and action as though living by faith is this kind of meditative quietude that religious people do in a monastery. No, humans are always acting all the time, and to play faith often against action implies that the life of faith is different from human life, but it's not. Human life is life of a faith. And according to Hebrews 11, what faith does is faith gives, faith gives our human action a particular shape, a particular direction, a particular content, and a particular goal. Human action is already being shaped by some direction, content, and goal. But, but the confidence of faith leads us to, to, uh, to, to really act. Like, if faith doesn't act, if, if faith doesn't go big or go home, <laughs> if, uh, Lecrae writes, if faith don't act, then it really ain't faith. It really ain't faith. If it, if it doesn't... So here's another question. How, if we define faith in terms of confidence, assurance, certainty, kind of confident, assurance, trust, does defining faith in that way does that somehow exclude the, the, the reality of doubts? Does that mean that doubts can't be part of the process of faith? Well, let's, let's go back to the earlier scenario where I was talking about you need surgery. 
let's assume that in that scenario, you walk into the hospital, and maybe for some reason, I don't know why, but the surgeons forgot to put the scalpels away <laughs> from, the previous, from the previous time they had done this. So there you walk in, the scalpels are sitting on the tray nearby, you see the blade, you smell the hospital smells, which ah, gives me the heebie-jeebies every time I go into a hospital. I can't, ah! You see the white coats of the doctors. That makes my hands clammy. You see the straps on the table that they're going to tie you down. You say, why am I doing this? What am I doing in here? Doubts start creeping in. You start to lose your faith. Where are those doubts coming from? Those doubts are not coming from new evidence, per se. No, as a, as a matter of fact... Those doubts are coming from sight. You know, we were walking by faith. Now I've walked into the hospital. I'm losing my faith, and it's not because of reasoning. It's not because faith versus rationale. No, no, I'm losing my faith because of the sight of the knife, is how, is how uh, one author puts it. I'm losing my faith because this looks so much more awful than I thought <laughs> to begin with. So then in that situation, how do you get your faith back? Well, you think. You, you remember, well, why am I actually here? I need to remember what all that reasoning and all that decision and sifting of evidence. I got to remember what I was told. The way to renew my faith is to renew my thinking. So sure, doubt's always going to come somewhere along the line in the faith process. But the way that we deal with our, our doubts is we renew our faith we, we, think, I mean, we renew our thinking. Uh, and as Christians, yeah, we will say from time to time, why am I doing this Christianity thing? And so what do we renew our thinking with? What do, where do we go back at those moments that we're having our doubts? What did I say on Easter? We, you always reason from, out from what? Out from the resurrection. Everything goes back to the resurrection. Everything goes back to the belief that the resurrection is a historical reality that actually happened in this world. Because the cross and resurrection are true, and because that truth is actually the future, the promised future, the the promised resurrection future coming into the present, then I I can be confident that whatever God has promised in the future is a is a promise I can take to the bank. All right, thirdly, thirdly, verse 13, faith desires the better city. We read there, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly country. They were longing, desiring... A city whose builder and architect is, is God. Abraham was your first urban visionary because <laughs> he was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God, a, a better country, a heavenly country. If you and I lived in a refugee camp today and we read those verses that I just read to you, we would be so jazzed by those verses because we'd be like, yeah, th- there is no home there is no home for me down here. My hope is not here. Uh, my hope is in that the, the meek will inherit the earth. My hope is in the better city. I had us read from John chapter 14 earlier that Jesus has 
that he says, I've gone to pl- prepare a place for you in my father's house. My father's house is a city. And if we were living in a refugee camp, we would be like, yes, this is so true. I can't wait to get out of this place. But as we realize, the biggest danger we face is, the, is, is because, because we live in paradise. This is paradise. It can almost, it, has it ever felt this way to you? It can almost feel like Christianity is just an amenity that we tack on to the end of our already nice life. Christianity, uh, it's, it's sort of like a supplement. It's a way to supplement an already wonderful American dream that I am presently enjoying. And with Christianity, well, it's great because it'll help me have a better marriage, happier children. My business will go better because I'm lead, leading it on biblical principles. I can, I can have the American dream and then Christianity will just give me a, a little more satisfaction. No, brothers and sisters, faith desires a better city. Parents, what your kids need to see out of you, they need to see that you're a foreigner and stranger on earth. They need to see that this is not your home and that you're not believing that this is the good life and that this is all there is to life. They need to see you actively being a foreigner and stranger on earth, as it just describes here, actively desiring the better city. Singles, your friends need to see you living for that city, uh, living for that country, wasting your time on things like missions, doing things which require heavy commitment to your faith because you believe, they need to see that you believe God rewards people who make costly sacrifices on his behalf. Are they seeing that? For those who take the risky step of audacious faith and and jump forward into action, God says, God says this about you. He says, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. I'm not ashamed to be called your God. What's another way of putting it? The, what is the opposite of being ashamed? He says, for those who, who take the audacious risks of, of faith, he says, what's the opposite of being ashamed? I am proud. I am proud to be called your God. May that be said of us. May, that, may, may God have the joy of being able to say that to us. It's the dad who's, who's standing in the middle of the swimming pool. And his daughter, son, is up on the cool deck, afraid of the water, afraid to jump in. The dad reaches his hands out, out to her and says, jump, it's okay, I'll catch you. And the kid is, no, I won't do it. And then when they finally do, it, this is so much fun, let's do it again. And what does the dad think of that? That, that dad experiences the joy of being a proud dad. I'm so proud of you. May that be said of us. So to summarize, uh, here's the summary. Faith is the confidence in things we can't, faith is confidence in things that cannot be seen and assurance that God will keep his promises and bring them to pass in due time. This assurance, this confidence gives us direction and shape to all of our human actions and the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not whether or not you have faith, but, but where you put the faith you have. What are you putting it in? What are you building your life on? Let me finish with this final admonition, brothers and sisters. Who of us here really believes, really believes that if we seek Christ, if, 
I seek Christ's kingdom and Christ's righteousness, he will richly reward me for doing so. Who believes that? Who really believes that God will not forget your obedience and your service of others, but will richly reward you as the massively generous God that he is? Who believes that even our worst sins will be utterly forgiven if we hold fast to Jesus? Who believes that we can do all things through him who gives me strength? And who believes that, that his power is made perfect in my weakness? If you believe this, let me see it. Let us see your faith made visible. Yeah, go big or go home. If you have decided to follow Jesus, then let him take you to a new and difficult place that he wants you to go. Where are we going to step out and what are we going to do because of, of our faith? Look, let's not, be, let's not be Presbyterians who can sit here and intellectually describe to you the three aspects of faith. Uh, let's be Baptists or Pentecostals. Let's, do, let's be somebody who does something with this faith. Let's, the, the better city is prepared for us on the horizon. Let's, let's go to it. Let's finish. Let's finish strong. Amen.